You are now entering the transit zone. The Commonwealth Integrity Commission, as you'll see in the legislation, will have greater powers than a Royal Commission. It will have the power to compel people to give sworn evidence at hearings, with a maximum penalty of two years for failure to comply. Two years imprisonment, that is. It will have the power to compel people to provide information and produce documents, even if the information would incriminate the person, again with a maximum penalty of two years imprisonment for non-compliance. It will have the power to search people in their houses or seize property under warrant. It will have the power to arrest people. It will have the power to intercept phone calls and use other surveillance devices to investigate persons and to confiscate people's passports by court orders. It will also have the ability, its agents, that is its officers, to assume false identities for the purposes of investigation. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston on the Mid-North Coast in New South Wales. And Tim Dunlop in Southbank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts. The Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beapai peoples of the Port Macquarie region in New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Hi Tim, hi Margot. On a pretty amazing sort of day, the seventh straight day of no COVID new cases in Victoria and no deaths. And of course, United States elections, Margot. Yes, over 100,000 cases of COVID in the US. How are you seeing it, Tim? Very excited about the double donuts for seven days in a row. I really never thought this day would come. We're down mm. to, what is it? It's a it's a 1.714 day average or something at the moment. Just feel pretty good about that, to tell you the truth. Same here. I just, different sense of confidence inside me. I'm just feeling safer in the world, a different person in the world, just shows you the underlying psychology, which we've been musing about the last few podcasts. But now that I'm experiencing that, seven straight days, and of course, for Daniel Andrews, politically uh, very morale building and instilling confidence, and perhaps deflecting some of the sallies against him politically. Well, let's not go too far. I think there's still some questions to answer there. But yeah, look, from the outset on this, I felt that the lockdown was the right thing to do. And I think, yeah, you can claim some sort of vindication given the figures that we're saying at the moment. It's quite incredible. Well, at the end of today's podcast, we might reflect more on the United States presidential election. But our topic today, the focus for today, is the creation of an Australian Federal Integrity Commission, or as the federal government calls it, a Commonwealth Integrity Commission. And many citizens, simply a federal ICAC. The federal member for Indi and Northeastern Regional Victoria, Dr Helen Haynes, has formally presented a private member's bill in the House of Representatives to establish such a commission. On Monday, after a very long delay, the Coalition's Federal Attorney-General, Christian Porter, fronted the media to, at last, lay out the details of the government's draft bill. And we're now looking at a six-month consultation period around that draft. So what are the key differences between the Haynes Bill and the government's approach to integrity, ethics and corruption in the federal sphere? And how effective would each approach actually be? Helen Haynes has just entered the transit zone from Wangaratta in northeastern Victoria. Her electorate has been sharply affected by the border closings between Victoria and New South Wales, especially between Wodonga and Albury. Coronavirus world is the overarching context for everything these days. Helen, welcome to the Transit Zone. Thank you so much, Peter, and hello to Margot and Tim and to whoever's listening. It's great to have you in the zone, and I don't know how surprised you were to see Christian Porter announce the government's bill on Monday the 2nd of November. Let's cut to the chase. What are the main differences? Take us through them in summary. What are the main differences between your bill and the government's in this area? 
Well, Peter, I actually wanted to start with the fact that the government gave us their bill on Monday, which was exactly seven days after I introduced the Australian Federal Integrity Commission 2020 into the parliament. And I think to any astute follower of the long, long saga that has been the establishment of an integrity commission, it was no mistake that the government quickly got their bill out a week after I presented mine. The pressure has been building, of course. We had two weeks of Senate estimates that led into the presentation of my bill. The Australian public heard yet again another rolling series of questionable practices in public life. For any anybody listening to the news in the last couple of weeks, the fact that uh, $30 million was paid for a $3 million piece of land in the Western Sydney Airport zone, the ASIC problems with the with the chair and deputy chair, uh, or CEO, I should say, the Australian post cartier watches and preceding all of that throughout my very short tenure as a member of parliament we've had sports rorts of course and grasslands jamlands you know the list goes on this past week where uh, a private members bill was introduced outlining a very robust bill for an integrity commission and and now the attorney general has stepped forward with the government's bill which we know they've had for 10 months is is no accident i'm very pleased that the government has finally come good with their draft legislation, but I am somewhat dismayed, really, that it looks pretty much no different uh, to the framework that the attorney presented to us a long time ago now, when his discussion paper came out and there was consultation on that discussion paper. You ask what the key differences are. Fundamentally, the framework that I'm putting forward is one that responds to a key set of principles that legal experts Uh, integrity academics and everyday people are saying we need to have in any kind of commission that was to address the lack of transparency and potential corruption in federal parliamentary life and public life. That is that there should be one rule for all. So whether in fact you are a member of the police force, the Australian Federal Police Force, whether you're a member of Home Affairs, whether you're an MP, whether you are a staff member of an MP, whether you are in fact the CEO of ASIC or any other public organisation, that the same set of rules must apply. Under the government's model, the same set of rules do not apply. There are different different boundaries set. There are, in fact, uh, different revenues set. So if we were to take public hearings, for example, the police force would be subject to the possibility of a public hearing in the course of an investigation into a complaint. If I was subject to an investigation, that would not be a public hearing under any circumstances. Under the government's model, there would be no public findings either. So that should there be an investigation made into a member of parliament or their staff or indeed anyone in a public department, we would never know about it because there would be no public findings. In the model that I've put forward, there would be both public hearings available to everyone and indeed private hearings too. Um, Important that we have very good safeguards. We don't want to see things like star chambers, really. We want to see good, fair process. But Public findings would be made under the model that I've presented. They would have to be presented to the parliament in the next sitting period, so they couldn't you know, be kicked off into the long grass. Likewise, there's a component of my bill which I think is actually rather special, and it is in response to considerable consultation I've had with, with MPs across the floor who have some legitimate fears about being brought before a public integrity commission and, in fact, being found to have no case to answer and having no provision to ever 
clear their name. Uh, and we've seen that happen. It's 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 not commonplace, but it's been a critique of, of the New South Wales ICAC and indeed the Triple C uh, in Western Australia. So one of the remedies to that, which I have in my bill, is that the Commissioner would present a supplementary public report to the Parliament that would completely exonerate anyone who was found to be entirely innocent. So again, they have that opportunity to, to have their name completely cleared. And I, and I think that's really, really important. Let's go to some of the specific elements. The definition of corruption itself, that lies at the heart of a lot of this, doesn't it? Mm. What are the differences between what Christian Porter defined as corruption, corrupt conduct, and in your bill? Yes, it's a really important question. So I have a broad definition of of corruption and, it, of course, it needs to be systemic. There needs to be considerable evidence and academic evidence as well as, as um, hard-faced evidence that there is uh, something to be answered for and that it is something that can be tracked back and forward in time uh, and that it would clearly breach any accepted code of conduct to even get to the first bar of being investigated. The Attorney's Bill has set a bar even higher than that in that it would need to be potentially criminal conduct. Now, this is a really big difference because uh, something like sports frauds would never reach an investigation because it, it would not be clearly demonstrated that that, in fact, was criminal conduct, but in under any any examination of what is the right thing to do, it would be classified as potentially corrupt conduct. So something like sports rorts would be investigated by a commission under the legislation I've put forward, but it would not be under the attorney's bill. It's a very important difference. We also have, of course, mechanisms right now to deal with criminal conduct. I'm not convinced that spending $143 million on a Federal Integrity Commission that only examines criminal conduct would indeed solve the problem that we have. In your dealings with um, the crossbenchers and the Labor Party in getting your bill together, how big a sticking point were the rules around retrospectivity with them? And maybe you could just say something about that aspect of your bill as well. Fundamentally, when I speak with uh, MPs across the floor, whether they be Labor Party crossbenchers who sit with me or indeed members of the government. Retrospectivity is not something many of them are particularly worried about. Most of them understand that you cannot apply a new law to a to an old situation. That's fundamental. Natural justice must apply. That if we're looking at retrospectivity, it's around uh, what was what was corrupt. 20 years ago and is corrupt now is still corrupt. Likewise, if criminal conduct occurred 10 years ago and it's criminal conduct today, the same rule applies. But if there's a new new law, that could not be applied to something that happened in the past. So, you know, that's actually very fundamental and most people understand sure. that. It, it, it is something the government talk about a lot, but I, I think it's one of those, you know, here's a ball, look over here moments. What most MPs are concerned about is uh, innocent people having their reputation forever damaged through a, through a public investigation. That's what I heard time and time again. That's what they were worried about. You know, they, everyone cites the Nick Griner case. Likewise, people who understand in the need for broad uh, jurisdiction and broad uh, application understands the Eddie Obeid case. You know, um, the Obeid case would, would not be investigated by, by the government model, but it, it in, indeed would be by the model I've put forward. Now, Helen, I noticed that when Christian Porter was laying out the details of his bill or the principles of his bill, he made great play and repeated it, that his bill provides a commission that has greater powers than a royal commission. How do you see that? 
Well, it's clearly not true that a Royal Commission, of course, can initiate its own investigations. And the commission that the attorney is putting forward has two arms, of course. One is the Ackley arm. Just explain what that arm is. Okay, so that's the law enforcement arm, and that's that's the arm that can, uh, can have public hearings and can initiate investigations. The other arm is the public service arm, which includes MPs and their staff members, and the commission can't investigate of its own initiation. And it can't accept public referrals. And, you know, a Royal Commission can. A Royal Commission has public hearings. The public service arm of, of the attorney's bill cannot. It, it does not have the same powers as a Royal Commission. That's just patently not accurate. As I understood what Christian Porter was saying, he sees it much more as a gathering of evidence sort of body. And then if they reach that criminal misconduct threshold, they then refer that evidence to public prosecution. So it's much more an evidence gathering sort of body that he envisages. Is that right? Which is essentially a replication of what our police force does. It's essentially a replication of of how our our justice system works right now. What it also lacks is that it's, it's responding to issues of possible criminality. It completely misses the point around pro integrity. One of the fundamental parts of the proposition I have is uh, that there's a sister bill, actually, the Commonwealth Parliamentary Code of Standards, uh, Standards Bill, which um, outlines what we would expect of our federal members of parliament. In the actual AFIC uh, structure itself, there are assistant commissioners for education and research and an inspector and an arm of this that is around education for parliamentarians and their staff and public officials, whereby you can seek good advice, uh, whereby there is a remit, a statutory remit, that every public service department has a pro-integrity plan and that that's, uh, that's measured and assessed so that we can, in fact, learn from mistakes of the past and that we can mitigate against corruption, that we can have processes in place. For example, if we take the Leppington Triangle, that there would be robust processes in in the Department of of Infrastructure that would uh, ensure that that cannot happen. And likewise, if it does, that any junior member of that department who spots a problem would have the capacity to refer. Helen, we all know that secrecy is often used as a cloak to cover up all sorts of things in the areas of conflicts of interest, ethical lapses, those blurry lines as people deal with each other in the making of the sausage, if you like. Now, we've seen the National Cabinet emerge and we've seen COAG expunged. We've also seen the COVID Commission headed up by Nev Power, which has become some sort of weird hybrid, sort of a power cabinet, hasn't it, with access to secret cabinet documents and input to cabinet processes. How do you view that increasing secrecy of the Morrison government as it might connect to this campaign for increased integrity and anti-corruption? Yeah, Peter, I think it builds the case. I'm deeply concerned about this. We put in some, uh, we as in a nation, stood up the uh, National COVID Commission headed by by Mr Power very rapidly without consultation more broadly, without um, expressions of interest, without nominations. That happened. It's continued. And uh, the, the bit that deeply concerns me about that is that none of us will have access to any of the deliberations in that group. Um, the documents from that group are going to be considered uh, cabinet in confidence, which I think is very, very concerning. Um, These are not elected officials. These are uh, people who've been handpicked. I have real concerns about that. 
I think we've seen some success from the National Cabinet. We've also seen in recent months some real problems with that too. My feelings on that aren't as strong as they are about the Neville Powerheaded Commission. I have real concerns about that. Also, I have genuine concerns around the lack of funding to the ANAO and, in fact, the reduction of funding to them in the latest budget. We've seen what Herculean work they've been doing way beyond, in a way, what any ANAO should be expected to do. They've unpacked things that uh, have exposed some deeply troubling issues, which we've seen um, come to light in these last, last couple of months. So, when COVID first struck, I don't know if you recall, but um, I wrote an op-ed around transparency during a time of global emergency. And the real need, as I saw it, not just for a Senate committee to to look into this, but in, for, in fact, a joint House and Senate committee, whereby members of the lower house as well as the Senate could have the uh, opportunity to ask the questions that need to be asked of government in their response to uh, to COVID. That was knocked back by the parliament, essentially. Prime Minister was not happy to have that. The Attorney General was not happy to have that. And in fact, the Labor Party did not want that either. They wanted a Senate committee because, of course, they can chair that. But what we saw as a result of that was exactly what I was afraid would happen when the Senate committee, in fact, asked a minister to present the minister refused to come and the minister at the time was uh, the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, who was asked to explain about JobKeeper. I'd had a conversation with the Attorney General about exactly this to say that we needed a joint. We needed a joint House and Senate committee because it's only in a joint House and Senate committee that ministers can be compelled to come before the committee. He reassured me at the time, although I was not reassured, that should a minister be called, they would absolutely come before a Senate committee. Well, that was found to be, of course, uh, not the case very, very rapidly, wasn't it? So, yes, I've got real concerns. I just wonder about how you would see the connection between potential corruption and what you might call access journalism, that relationship between media and government and government using, you know, drops, etc., to get information out there. Look, I think if I understand the question correctly, Tim, what we've got going on right now is a situation where everything is investigated via via the media or indeed through the good work of the ANAO. But, you know, we have accusations made about um, people in public life constantly through the media, whether that be through a drop from someone, whether that be from good investigative journalism. But we don't have any mechanism within our federal parliament to address this so that uh, should someone have a concern, the only place they have to go is often the media. Um, in the model that I've put forward, again, a key difference between the two of them is uh, the strong whistleblower protection in my model, which would mean uh, that any member of the public or indeed any junior member of a public service could make a referral through to the commission and that could be investigated. Uh, right now, under the government's model, it's only departmental heads actually senior people who can make a referral and you know again how would that solve the the ASIC problem for example yeah so I think that a, a robust uh, integrity commission would in fact give give comfort greater comfort to members of parliament really than the current situation where there's there's a lot of mudslinging in question time and um, front page news that we never really get a resolution to. I just want to ask you Helen about your tactics now like you know you're all set to come on our our show on Monday and your strategy as I understand it was that you had magnificently really got the entire crossbench from Adam Bant to Bob Catter, Labor and the Greens prepared to back 
a motion by you to suspend standing orders next month so that you could debate your bill. Now, your strategy, I presume, before the Porter announcement was to bring across two coalition backbenchers under pressure because it's very, very popular and starting to get quite urgent. So I'm assuming, again, that Christian Porter dumped his bill to go, right, you know, let's do some bullshit and, um, and delay it for six months for consultation and it'll be off the boil. So am I right so far? So far, you're spot on. Then comes the, you know, Scotty from Marketing's dead cat, right? So what is your strategy now? My strategy is the strategy I've used since I came to Parliament, and that is to act in good faith. So, and you're quite right, Monday that came, as as I was about to talk to you, I had a missed phone call from the Attorney-General who was ringing me to tell me, Helen, I'm about to announce my Integrity Commission bill. Um, so it was all happening in, you know, live time, Margot. Um, so my reaction to that was, how fantastic, we've pushed the Attorney-General to make this happen. Now, though, now what do I do? But of course, we had game planned and thought about what would happen if the if the attorney does in fact bring his bill in. And there's two things there. One is great, that's happened. Second thing is, what do the other parliamentarians think then of what the attorney general is um, presenting to us? And of course, prior to Monday, I was speculating, like everyone else, um, will he have listened to the critique of his first framework and made sensible adjustments so that we have a palatable bill? You seriously asked yourself that question, Helen? Are you of course, serious? I, of course. I, oh, come yes, on. Yes, I asked myself that question. Would, and would what he was do your that? answer, and, Helen? Uh, <laughs> oh, come on. Well, I, of course, I, I read the bill and I uh, answered that question very quickly that um, I didn't see in it the key principles that I was looking for. And I've been upfront about that from the get-go with the attorney and with the general public when I announced the Beechworth principles in February. These would be the things that are not negotiable for me. So that was pretty clear to me that it didn't answer those questions. So what I will do now and what I am doing right now is speaking to the very people that I have been working with from the get-go. I've been speaking with my crossbench colleagues who, like me, find the government bill doesn't measure up. I've been speaking with the opposition who likewise find that this bill does not measure up. And I'm speaking with the government backbenchers about what do they think now. So where we're at is that they're having a detailed briefing from the attorney's office so they can be very clear about what the government has on offer. And then I'm speaking with them to unpack the differences between the two bills and how we may progress this conversation in a way that delivers what the Australian public actually needs. That's a live conversation. Are you saying, Helen, that you won't do your motion to spend standing orders? Or I'm not or... saying that at all. I'm now working with the government backbenchers to understand what is the best way that we can now work together to get the bill that we need. That may be for me to continue with my bring on debate on the AFIC, or it may not. Again, I do this in good faith to get the outcome we're all looking for, which is a really good bill. The AFIC now sits there on the table. It's actually been introduced to Parliament. The, the government bill um, has not been introduced to Parliament yet. It's, it's a draft exposure. So we actually have a bill before the Parliament, which is mine. And now the question is, should we go ahead and debate that bill? Or do members of Parliament think that it's a very reasonable thing to wait another six months of consultation on a bill that we think at the moment has a lot of work to be done on it? That's where we're at, Margot. 
But Helen, you seem to be talking as though this is all a very reasonable discussion between reasonable people and you'll come up with a good compromise. Now, we know that's not the case. I know that you have to do that. But my guess about why Morrison suddenly did this is he knew the momentum was, you know, big deal against him. So he said, I'll put up this fake bill and then the backbenchers that are worried will be able to have the excuse not to vote for your motion. Would that be a fair summary of his strategy, do you think? Well, I can't read the mind of Mr Morrison, but what I do know is that uh, perhaps he may be underestimating the moral courage of some members of the backbench of the government uh, who are very committed to, to solving this problem. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned moral courage. I've been watching US politics for too long, I, I imagine, but I would have thought that moral courage equals immense pressure from their constituents. That's Would exactly that be right. Fair and if if right. you were to do, I think that's very fair. I think if any member of parliament was to go away and uh, ask their constituents what they think is the remedy to this long-standing problem of integrity in our federal parliament, they would get a pretty pretty strong answer from their constituents. So what I've been doing as part of my campaigning is to put the word out right around the nation. It's what I've been doing. If you care about this, if you really do want to have trust in your parliament, if you want to remedy this problem, if you want to see the back of the likes of sports rorts and all those other issues, then you need to get in touch with your member of parliament and request that they come and speak to Helen or they get behind Helen and what she's trying to do with this bill. So that call is out there. What response it have you had so far, course, Helen? I'm what what response have you had? From, yeah, a very strong response, actually, Margot. I'm getting numerous emails and telephone calls into my electoral office from people all over the nation saying they have done just that. They've contacted their MP and they've contacted me to say they've done so. I've also got people on the ground here in Indi. And as, as you know, Indi is an electorate that is very engaged with its democracy. There are people here contacting their friends and family all over Australia, asking them to do the same. That's going on. But likewise, there's many ways that a parliament can work and a lot of it is outside of the floor of parliament. I'm doing my best with those relationships I've been building around a common cause to find a solution to this. There's no question to me either that the work of those government MPs who've in good faith collaborated with me in putting pressure within the government to bring on the bill has had a big impact. There's quite a few irons in the fire and I will do as I always do, be be uh, working with the best of intentions and I will use whatever parliamentary tools are at my disposal and if that means suspending standing orders and actually bringing on debate on the 3rd of December, if I do that, you can be sure that that's because I'm confident that's the best way forward. It just seems to me that you've got less than a month to December 3. Now, I've seen from the mainstream media, etc., that you've got, you know, really big hitters in the elites arguing this, and obviously you've got the public opinion polls supporting them, but I just haven't been able to find a grassroots campaign, a, a campaign website, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, people tweeting or Facebooking the letter or the email that they've written to their local member, sending in a video of asking them, demonstrating, like, you know... I sort of feel there's a bit of a gap in mobilising the grassroots, which I would have thought would be crucial to getting those backbenchers to knock on your door. Is is anything in place for that? Are you concerned there seems to be a gap in that? Are you able to fill it? Because you must be very short-staffed. You've got border problems. You've got, you know, you're one independent. Yeah, well, I'm... I'm uh... Yeah, I'm one independent. That's right. I don't have an entire party structure behind me. I don't have large fundraising capacity. 
I have uh, my voice in Parliament and, of course, the community that supports me and and the solid endorsements of many informed and learned judges yeah. and academics, as, as you said, um, behind me. And I also have uh, had this call out to action, of course. But I think what, what has to be there, Margot, in any call to action is a, is a really clear ask. And uh, that clear ask, of course, is around contacting your Member of Parliament and asking them to do something. And right now we're in this space, and it's only been a space of less than a week. The, yep. the attorney just introduced his bill on Monday. Prior to that, the ask could have been much straight, more straightforward in calling on debate. Now, some might argue that, well, we've got a, a six-month consultation process. So, you know, the ask is participate in that, put in a submission. But we know that everyday people, some of them would do that, but many people may be bamboozled by the complexity of a bill as large as an integrity commission. So how effective that consultation period could be, people more cynical than I may suggest it's it's not a very effective mechanism at all. And in fact, my greatest criticism of that is that that won't be made public either. Yep. Call me cynical, but Christian Porter said at the start of the consultation process on Monday that they won't change their mind on what, what it will be. So, And then I compare your process, you know, you actually represent the people of all political colours in a conservative seat in, in Indi, where you've had public consultations, you've had a public meeting, you've come up with your Beechworth principles for an ICAC, you've your predecessor, Cathy McGowan, put up a bill in 2017. You put up another bill in 2019. You've got consensus now. You put up a, a 21. Like, you're very open. They're clearly delaying till the momentum's over. So I understand the complexity because now you can't just say, hashtag, bring on debate on my bill. Now you've got to say, hashtag, bring on debate on my bill. And that's because, blah, my bill is, is better than their <laughs> bill, blah, blah, blah. I, I know it's a little bit more complex, but it would be a shame to miss the moment, wouldn't it, to, to give Australians a, a Christmas present of a, of a federal ICAC. Is there a campaign committee hidden somewhere that I don't know about? Or well, I, I would I would love people to get behind this, Margot. Of course, I would. Uh, and uh, there is no hidden campaign. Obviously, on my website there is a substantial amount of information around the AFIC bill, around bringing on debate, around how you can write to your MP and what you should say. All of those things are there, and I would really say to people, do that. Any other support I could get from uh, the rest of the nation, whether it be through you or others, I absolutely welcome. That. I think that is what a democracy is about. I am a vehicle in the parliament right now to say I can help to make this happen, but I can't do it alone. The question, of course, is when is the moment? And for me, the moment to introduce my bill was very, very clear to me. I had given the Attorney General from the time I entered Parliament, May last year, until October 26th this year, and I ran out of patience for that bill. Two years. That's good faith. Mm. So the next part of that was to get it up on the notice paper so that we could put the arguments for and against, knowing that it would take a brave soul to cross the floor to even get it to debate, and it would take an even braver soul to then vote with me on that bill. The other part of debate, of course, is that one hopes in, in having a debate that you get really good faith amendments to improve legislation. Yeah. And, and I think this is, this is the other thing I would say, is that my bill is not perfect. No bill is as a general rule you know it does need the whole parliament to engage in it to get solid amendments at the moment i i'm still keeping the 3rd of december very squarely in my sights yep. as as when i may jump to do that 
And uh, as I said at the beginning, what I'm trying to do now is to work with those other members of parliament to get a read from them on how acceptable they think their own government bill is and how acceptable they think a six-month period of consultation is. Because unless I'm clear what they think about that, no amount of uh, agitation from the rest of the nation will necessarily change their mind. They, they can probably very uh, straight up say, well, I'm waiting for the consultation. So what, what we need to do is to make sure that people across the nation understand what it is that ultimately we need to land with. You're in the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark with Tim Dunlop and Margot Kingston. Our email address is transitzonepod at gmail.com. So, whatever your questions, suggestions, critiques, email them to us at transitzonepod at gmail.com. Our guest in the zone is Dr Helen Haynes, Federal Member for Indi, and our focus, a proposed Australian Federal Integrity Commission. I'm really fascinated by the role of you as an independent or independence more generally in the parliamentary process. And to hear you being so um, eloquent about parliamentary processes, etc., I just wonder to what extent did you come in with that sort of knowledge about process or how government works and, or to what extent have you been learning on the job? Oh, Tim, very much learning on the job. I was alarmed at how little I knew about how government works when I took my seat. Um, right. I'm very, uh, very diligent student in, in lots of ways. As a community independent, as the independent member for Indi, we have a bit of a thing going on down here, and that's about everybody learning how to work with government, how to participate in their democracy. We have a volunteer program, which is kind of uh, famous that Cathy started, whereby people come up to Canberra and spend uh, a parliamentary sitting week in the office of Indi and see firsthand how, how the whole show operates. Uh, I was one of those people and I saw how um, the parliamentary tools that Cathy used and how to use them and, and how it works. Okay. Uh, so I, I had that up my sleeve. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's about understanding pretty clearly what you can do as a member of parliament and there's a lot you can do. I think that many people think uh, that unless you're part of uh, a major party, you've got no clout. But I think we can see from the events of the past week that as an independent member of parliament, you've got a lot of clout. You can introduce a bill. You can work with the media. You can work with your parliamentary colleagues. You can use committees. Uh, you can ask questions in question time. And you may recall that uh, leading into me uh, introducing my bill, I asked the Attorney General straight up, when's your bill coming? I got a pretty long-winded answer that didn't tell us when. You know, there's uh, opportunities with matters of public importance. We've had several of those from the crossbench that's focused on integrity. There's multiple ways. And of course, uh, it's it's also about working with your community. And Margot mentioned before that I ran a, well, two participatory processes in Indi, one in February with the Beechworth principles when we spun that up pretty quickly, actually, and we had more than 200 people show up to the old courthouse in Beechworth to hear the Honourable David Harper, AO, former appeals court judge, uh, talk about integrity and principles, to hear me talk about what I was planning to do as a Member of Parliament and how they can get involved. They then struck up a petition that had uh, over 1,500 people in um 
COVID came upon us a couple of weeks after that. So they managed to get that petition rolling, a paper petition around uh, around the electorate. Uh, they got that done. There's lots of ways you can make, you can have influence for sure. There's also the committee process that could work quite well with this bill. I have the opportunity to put this, this bill of mine to a um, parliamentary committee of inquiry. That That's another mechanism that I have. I think it's just been a wonderful development over the last few years, especially the Indi model. And we've seen it sort of used in Warringah. There's um, a similar things happening in McKellar at the moment. I wonder what you think overall about how well, as a nation, we're served by the continuing two-party system. Would you like to see more independents or smaller parties in the parliament? Would you be in favour of proportional representation in the lower house, for instance? Oh, look, Tim, obviously I'm a I'm sample of one very biased sample as an independent. But, <laughs> you know, the, the strength of the crossbench is one that we should be building. People who are observing politics in Australia can ha- just have a look right now in the 46th Parliament and look at what's coming from the crossbench. A really well-researched bill, a, a complex bill, um, collaboratively put together from me uh, just just over a week ago. Uh, you've got on Monday, this Monday, Zali Stegall stepping forward with her Climate Action Act bill, really important piece of legislation. Again, uh, two bills that are put there in good faith, uh, two bills of solid policy work coming from independent officers, not with a full mm. party and all the machinations behind them, but from sheer, sheer blood, sweat and tears uh, and community effort to put in good faith to the parliament big policy ideas and solutions to the most wicked problems that we're facing. We're seeing that from the crossbench. Now, just imagine if we had a couple more members like us on the crossbench who weren't there for their own needs, weren't there with a single issue, were there because they were seriously engaged with making our nation a better place. Uh, And we were to have a, a minority government again, and we've seen in this nation the good work that happens in a minority government because the government is then forced to collaborate. And, you know, we've seen that in other nations where that actually works for the benefit of the majority of people. I would love to see a, uh, a bigger crossbench. I think all thinking Australians need to have a good look at the candidates coming into their next election and ask themselves, is there a quality independent who will work for us there? Tim, when you mentioned proportional, were you were you envisaging something like the the New Zealand model with multi-member proportional, where they've got the list system as well, so the overall vote matches up with the number of seats much more closely, something like? Yeah, that. I mean, there's different models, I guess, Peter, and the New Zealand model is one, but I, I guess just something that takes away that the preferential system, where secondary votes essentially channeled to the two major parties and, and giving them that advantage. Well, I Tim, I, and... I would not be in Parliament if it were not for our preferential system. So, exactly. you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I think, think we, um, we need to be careful about that. I, I think in, in terms of the, um, the machinations of, of how our system works, we're currently stuck with that. But it's simpler than that. It really is. It, it's around our communities just not accepting the status quo and saying, you know, we could do so much better than this. And and who's out there that can can represent us? 
you know, I, I would think, I mean, Indi is a, a great example. I would never in my wildest dreams have ever thought that I would become uh, a member of parliament. It was just not something I ever seriously, not even, never considered. Not on my radar at all. This was not something for me. I'm very happy. I was very happy in the role I had. But when I became engaged in politics through what happened in Indi, that changed everything. And, and then by being constantly invited into the process of democracy through a member of parliament that wanted to engage with the community rather than with a major party, so many things then became obvious to me about how you can engage in public life in a meaningful way, in a respectful way, in, in a way that actually does make stuff happen. And, and of course, Warringah then um, demonstrated that you know, uh, I think we've created models that other electorates can follow. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also here to say that won't happen by magic. Like, that is sure. a lot of work. It takes a lot of very skillful organisation. And, and I would, again, say to the major parties, at your peril, underestimate the skills that are out in the communities. And if they're motivated enough, boy, they can turn it on. Uh, Indi and Warringah have demonstrated that. And, of course, you know, you've got Andrew Wilkie down in, in uh, Hobart who's demonstrated, again, what a strong principled independent. Look what we've seen from Crown. And Andrew Wilkie is uh, a large part responsible for that, you know, bringing that to the attention of the nation. I've followed this since 2013, and this is now the third term of an independent Indi, and more and more the community's been engaged and active and interested and I, I heard a rumour that the orange buses might might come up for December 3. I'll never forget the surprise when Cathy gave her maiden speech and then when she gave her departure speech that she actually had orange people in the gallery supporting their member. And it seemed to put every other politician into shock that people would actually be enthusiastic about their local member. I wasn't aware that you are actually talking to coalition politicians about getting consensus here. Can you tell me who you're talking to? Every journalist wants to know that. Uh, really? That, Margot, of course. <laughs> um, look, I, I want to respond to your statement. Uh, there is no question about the enthusiasm of the people of Indi. Um, as you know, yeah, you just pointed out, the galleries were full at Cathy's maiden speech and at her valedictory speech. And then when I made my first speech, same again, 250 people in the gallery and, and the sergeant at arms said, oh, my God, they're back again. Um, <laughs> you know? Back for December 3. They're going to deck the halls I, with orange when you suspend standing Well, orders. you know, we, we'll have just had the um, border open. The border is hopefully opening on uh, November the 23rd. And uh, I haven't been even able to get my staff into Parliament House. Uh, so I don't think we'll be able to get 200 people in. But I know Zali Steggall's doing her best tomorrow to bring a whole bunch of people in turquoise from um, Moringa. So, you know, this is the people's movement. There is no question. Uh, it is deliciously uh, contagious when your local member engages with you and, and does the things that they say they're going to do. Now, even if even if they're not successful, ultimately, you know, Cathy introduced a private member's bill on integrity. Now, that we haven't got an integrity commission yet, but she started that momentum. Yep, I've yep. been able to pick it up because the and people run with wanted it. me to and run with it and have, you know, influenced the Attorney General. So, People are very happy with incremental change. They are. You know, we'd love to see a glorious success. Of course we would. But um, good people are also pretty patient. This has been the year of rupture. We're at a point in our history, very much an existential moment, whereby parliamentarians need to be asking themselves the question, how do I do good? 
is there a middle way? And I think there's no better place for an integrity commission to come through from uh, but the crossbench. It's not a wedge nor a win. It's a consensus approach that can solve a problem uh, and free us all uh, if we do it right. Okay, I know you won't tell us who you're discussing this with. Can you tell us what citizens in what seats should put maximum pressure on? In other words, give me the top three that you think could cross the floor. (laughs) Go on, go on. (laughs) People right across the nation ought to be talking to their MP and they ought to be talking to their MP about a whole lot of things, but they jolly well should be talking to their MP about trust, trust in democracy and a decent integrity commission. Helen Haynes, I can see you're good on the slalom, very good on the slalom, and it's been terrific having you in the uh, transit zone today. And congratulations, by the way, on all the information on your website. We're going to point to that in the text around this podcast, but uh, the bill, of course, the explanatory memorandum, and an excellent infographic on the integrity bill, your integrity bill. I would recommend to people that they get into that infographic and do all the tracing of what happens uh, within your suggestion. Thank you so much for being with us in the transit zone. Thank, Thank you so Helen. much, Peter, and uh, thanks, Margot and Tim. Bye-bye now. Pleasure. Bye. Our guest in this edition of The Transit Zone, Dr Helen Haynes, the Federal Independent Member for Indi. Her website, which I mentioned with a copy of her private member's bill, proposing an Australian Federal Integrity Commission, plus a clear plain language explanatory memorandum, and a comprehensive infographic, and much more is at www.helenhaines.org. We'll put that link in the text for this episode of The Transit Zone. Before we go, Margot and Tim, we both know, and I guess everybody knows by now, who won the United States presidential election. Tim, you've been watching. Margot, you've been watching and following Joe Biden, the 46th president of the United States. But a lot of stuff still to come in terms of litigation. Donald Trump is fighting like bejesus and doing all this stuff about fraud and attacking the very basis of the voting system in that democracy in the United States. Tim, how have you seen it? I don't think he is fighting like the bejesus. I think he's kind of going through the motions a little bit. I thought he looked very... I don't know if you heard the telephone interview he did with Fox Morning News the other day. He really sounded half asleep. Some people suggested coming off medication, etc. But And even the press conference that he did Friday. Do you remember during the 2016 campaign, he referred to Bush as low energy? Well, he, he really looked like the low energy version of himself. Yeah, look, I mean, he's definitely trying to steal the election and no doubt they've got mechanisms in place to take various counts to court and they're relying on the courts to rule in their favour, etc. But it really seemed to me like his heart wasn't in it. So I wouldn't be surprised if he just kind of disappears off the face of the earth. I don't think so, Tim. I don't no, think I, so. I do. I, I, I genuinely do. I, once you pull back the curtain... Once the power's gone, you're just left with this silly little old wizard behind the curtain and no one's interested anymore. Look at the way the media's turning on him at the moment. They're not going to be boosting him in the same way that they have for the last four years. You one of the things people hear. I mean, Fox, uh, they haven't exactly turned on him, but they're certainly not boosting him in the same way. Even just the other networks have a completely different attitude. It's, you know, they can smell the power disappearing. Yeah, and yeah, I think he's yeah. going to be a much diminished, you know, he's, he's just not going to hold people's interest in the way that he has. It doesn't mean been... that he hasn't done a lot of 
damage to the system and, you know, something like Trumpism or whatever you want to call it still pervades the system in some sense. I can really see him disappearing. The big thing for me today was the New York Post, you know, Murdoch's chief attack dog in a, in a mainstream media sense. They actually, you know, had it as a headline, Trump makes baseless allegations of fraud. Yeah, in a news story, Tucker Carlson solemnly declaring on Fox that he's decided he's not going to incite anything anymore. All of a sudden, the yellow assholes in the U.S. Senate, the GOP, saying, "Oh well, we you know this is a fair election, and we shouldn't say fraud will destroy our democracy." You know, the whole power fading away. I agree with, but I do not agree with this analysis that an increasingly desperate Trump is trying to steal the election or whatever. I, I see his entire performances from election night as being convincing his fans that he is not a loser. That's all it is. So he can have the whole conspiracy theory and he'll go out and he'll say, that was uh, rorted, I'm actually a winner. Because, of course, if he's a loser, he loses all support. I'm a winner. Stick with me on my Trump TV or my re-election bid. To be honest, let's fuck over the Republican Party bid. Because my theory is that the polls were such ridiculously runaway wins that a lot of moderate Republicans, when they came to vote, said, oh, I'll vote Biden won and I'll vote Republican down the ballot, Senate and Congress, so that so that they'll put a check on Biden and, you know, look what look what happened. The cruelest irony for Trump, the cruelest irony, is that he has lost as the GOP has strengthened. You know, the whole idea about I am the GOP and it's nothing without me and I'll get rid of all you bastards if you say anything against me. And now all of a sudden the Republicans have kept the Senate they're very close to, to winning the, the Congress next time. They won a lot of seats off the Dems that they, they weren't expected to. And there is Trump, Trump leaving the stage. So even in the midst of disaster, you can have this, this funny little laugh before you, you never, ever want to see that bastard again. He's drawn us all in. We're all being characters in his, in his show. A lot of people have gone mad you know, including me, I don't think I'll be the only person that, that when he finally goes will say, I never want to see or hear from him again. And of course, there's another aspect to all this. Now in the political history of the United States, Joe Biden has the most votes ever for a presidential candidate. But the next in that ranking is Donald Trump. About 5 million votes at the moment behind him, and it'll probably be much more once they count all the votes in California and Washington State especially. There's another big irony, isn't there too, Margot, that in fact it was supposed to be a COVID-centred election, but you've got enormous numbers of Trump supporters who obviously supported his approach to COVID and his denialism and his underlying herd immunity approach to the COVID pandemic. But of course, that whole mail-in propaganda campaign that he conducted, I guess with in mind being able to pull on the stunt that he's just trying to pull on now, will exactly. in fact be his downfall. That will be his downfall. That's the irony to me, that in fact the whole mail-in thing is, and they're counting the votes, and it's mainly Democrats coming in. Yeah. You know, last week, Tim, I was saying, I have to believe, you know, Biden will win well, etc. And you start watching and Trump wins Florida and you go, oh, well, there's no, you know, easy path. And then it goes on and on. And end of season one of the Trump presidency, you know, of course, it's going to be a nail biter. Of course, Trump's going to give speeches saying, take to the streets and have a civil war to protect me. Of course, this disaster is going to happen, you know. And now we've got a situation where it looks like there will be a runoff of two Georgia Senate seats in January. And those seats will decide who controls the Senate. 
So now more billions will pour in. Sometimes I sort of see possibility that Biden might do okay, but, you know, in the end, the American people haven't given him much chance, really, have they? No, I think that's right. It makes a huge difference whether the Democrats have the Senate or not. And as you say, you've got those runoff elections coming up and it might go to the Democrats. But if they don't get the Senate, then, yeah, Biden's in a real pickle. As I think Peter was saying earlier, he's not only dealing with COVID then, he's dealing with that hostile Senate that's not going to give him an inch. McConnell's still there. He was re-elected. They get to call the shots in a way that makes it extremely difficult for the president to do anything. But Which is not to say that it's not a wonderful victory for democracies everywhere that Biden won. For a start, he's going back into the Paris Accord, which is big. Secondly, he can clean up foreign policy and, and hopefully lead Western Europe and democracies around the world to try and re-establish the, the rules-based order and have a, a sort of a common approach to dealing with China. He can also do a lot of things to clean up the public service. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets something on voting rights in, but I think from Australia's perspective, I'd say a relief to have that, that result. We are going to need support from our ally, our main ally, and hopefully Europe in, in combating what has now become clear is a, is a very big boot on our face from China. And I, I just don't know what would have happened if Trump would have won, but I, I fear we may have had to make a, a fairly humiliating knee bend to China. And now I feel that we've got a slightly more, more of a chance to stay upright, for the moment at least. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, well, I reckon we need to talk about the uh, Australia-China relationship in future podcasts here in the transit zone. I would point out, though, that, of course, Joe Biden has got back Wisconsin, Michigan. He seems to be rebuilding that blue wall, including Pennsylvania and Georgia, Arizona and Nevada. He has flipped those states. That is a very big breakthrough for the Democrats, hitting that southern sunbelt. It's one of those things where a couple of days later you think, oh, gee, Biden didn't do too badly. I'll just exactly. like to make one point about the, the white working class, which has swung even further, even greater turnout to, to Trump. I think it is crucial for Labor to reconnect with its working class base. Those Howard Battlers have, have been for sale, or, you know, have been in play ever since Howard made them his Battlers. And, and we know last year Morrison, you know, got them back. I would hate to see Labor get to the stage of the Democrats in America where they have a, a very odd and unstable coalition of suburban whites and people of colour. Very unstable, and, and Trump proved that again. And one of the disturbing things for me is, yes, Biden did get back the blue wall, but he got it by swinging suburban voters away from the Republicans, not by getting the working class whites back, which he did want to. So it's just something, you know, there's so many lessons in all our four-year obsessions with America that we can take and protect and enhance our democracy so that doesn't happen to us. And 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 my big one, I know I go on about this, is, is a, a Murdoch Royal Commission <laughs> and a federal ICAC. Well, Tim and Margot, next time we meet here in the zone, we'll know more about the aftermath perhaps litigation, perhaps the Supreme Court. Who knows what lies ahead over the next couple of days. Thanks for being with us, Tim, Margot. See you next time. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Margot. Goodbye after the longest week of 2020. <laughs> Ain't it the truth? Don't forget our email address here in the Transit Zone, transitzonepod at gmail.com. And we're still keen to hear from you about working from home during and after coronavirus lockdowns. Has it changed your work life, your home life? For better or for worse, and exactly how. 
share your story about working from home during the pandemic, send us the details to this email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia, with Mago Kingston near Wingham on the mid-north coast of New South Wales and Tim Dunlop in Southpac, Melbourne. We look forward to welcoming you back soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit Zone.